no i mean architecture is political we gotta we gotta add that stuff indeed we're tearing down communities to build multifamily, and you have to understand we are creating displacement you're displacing black and brown folks and they don't come back half of this podcast would be dedicated to the history of tyler house my journey and my discoveries and hey i'm gonna solve this housing problem hey guys what's up my name is melissa daniels this is the architecturalist political podcast where black and brown folks talk about architecture i hope you enjoyed this podcast and be part of my storytelling the venice biennale is happening right now it's we're in like the last week of may and even though this podcast isn't about the Biennale, it's been on my mind lately. So I'm just going to briefly talk about it before we get into the episode. And it kind of relates to it in terms of like academics. But Camille and I did not talk about this, but we'll get into that in a second. So I am scrolling through the social medias and at first, I, well, just overall and in general, I am thrilled. I am like awestruck. I am, I'm so happy that Africa is on stage right now. The entire continent of Africa and African diaspora is on stage right now to show what black and brown architects can do. The work that I've seen has been stunning and I wish I was there in person. The caveat here is that I'm not there. And I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about it. And I'm like, why am I not there? Why? Where's my invitation? And of course, I am not on that level, right, to get an invitation. But, you know, I could, I have credit cards, I guess. I could hop on a plane to Venice and experience that myself get some tickets and and go and experience that and then I start thinking about privilege and how I don't have the privilege of being personally invited but I have the privilege of going there plus or minus right so you can't just hop well you can you could just hop on a plane and go to Italy as long as you have the passport and the funds you can do that I have the passport I could scrape up the funds to be in debt and go. I don't have that much leeway with work. It's not like it's a three-hour drive or three-hour flight. And then there's the hotel costs, and then I want to eat. And then I'm in Venice, so I have to do what Italians do in Venice. And then it's like, I got to go to Rome. Or like, I have no idea how far Rome and Venice is. But the point is, is about privilege, and I have limited privilege. I can't just get up and go have responsibilities at place at work. Work is really the cuts with it, right? Like I don't have the flexibility to hop on a plane and go. I knew it was coming up and I could have attended if I'd planned. And I started a new job. So that would have been difficult considering that I am going to the AIA convention in San Francisco. So there's time off for that. And then I have other obligations that I had to request time off. So for me to 
request time off again to go there. It's, it just was not feasible. It wouldn't be responsible of me to do that. But I got I got upset because I'm not there. And I started to figure out ways that I could be amongst the peoples who do get invited to that. Who do I need to know to get invited to that? How do I do that? How? 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 And I, you know, I need to be my authentic self. So you can't just wiggle your way through it. It has to be authentic. You know, you you have to, or you just have to prove yourself, right? You have to do something that's extraordinary to even be on that radar. And then I started thinking about Pritzker Prize. I can never pronounce that. And how it always goes to some international person. And I started thinking about, I, in my lifetime, will never experience any of their work. I will never go to that country and experience any of their work. I can look at it, you know, I could Google it, but I can't see it. I'm privileged here to live in, in D.C., and I get to go to the African American Museum. And I'm privileged definitely growing up in Chocolate City in D.C. and knowing a whole bunch of black and brown architects and to experience what they've built and to have conversations about their buildings. But I want to be able to go to South America or to Africa and experience black and brown architecture. And again, I can do this, right? I could max out my credit cards and go and just do it. There's plenty of people out there who have done that. But I wasn't raised that way. And to even think about what I'm thinking about and talking to you about, that in itself just amazes me. Because my mom grew up in survival mode. And I took upon that because that's all I saw for the longest time in survival mode. So what does that mean, survival mode? You don't think about traveling because you need money and spending money thousands of dollars on airfare and and hotel and you have to eat and you know time off if you have the vacation time or you just lose that money all that thought that i just mentioned i don't see those people the people who design these things think about or do they? I mean, it could be just like, I don't know, I'm, I'm making a huge assumption, right? Because in order for you to design that that architecture, it's a level of privilege to have the client. Because the clients that I know, <laughs> not clients, but the people that I know, let's say you start off with residential, right? The residential projects that I know, these people save their pennies to do this addition or to renovate their bathroom. Like, or they took out a personal loan that's probably with a high interest rate. This isn't a blank check. Or even being able to have your projects on Dwell or, or Architect Magazine or L. All this I'm thinking as I'm scrolling through the internet, looking at this amazing work that these black and brown folks have put together. And how I wish I was there. It's heavy on my mind. And it's a weakness, I want to call it, because I can't get out of that survival mode mentality. I've never been across the pond. And I've been to other places, you know. No, that's not true. I did. I've, I've been to Niger. I've been to Niger for work. 
Niger. I said Niger. I'm sorry, Niger. Yeah. So that. So yeah, I have. But that was work, y'all. That was work, and I don't know why my bosses at the time decided to. Out of all the places they decided to send me, they sent me, and I guess they did. And I begged to go on more trips, and they let other people go. That's a different story. But I never been to Europe, and it's on my list to do. Now, mind you, I got I got married in Dominican Republic. So, <sighs> yeah, I've been I've been to places. You know, my folks are from Trinidad, and I've been to other Caribbean islands. Been to Panama, been to Costa Rica, Montreal. If you want to count that, Cancun. But that's it, and not for architecture. It's, all, it's just been like it's just beach, right? <laughs> that's all I care about. Like Yosemite Beach. Mine is mine is Montreal. That was strictly relatives. Anywhere with a beach, I'm there. And I've talked about this when I talk to people who have studied architecture in England, including my guest. Camilla did her Master's of Architecture at Architectural Association. And so we we talked about that a little bit. We talked about her experiences at the AA and, and comparing education in the UK versus education in the U.S., there really isn't a solution other than I need to go, right? I need to get out of that mindset and just go. It was bothering me that I was thinking about it. And the core of it, <laughs> the core of it is that it's my mindset and I'm working on it. So going back to this episode again, talking about Camille, towards the end of our conversation, we decided to create a conference. <laughs> Can you believe that, us creating a conference? Like, where did this come from? What was this idea about? The idea is for us to create, similar to a ACS, ACSA, the Association of Collegiate Schools of Architecture, founded in 1912 by 10 charter members, ACSA. ACSA is the International Association of Architecture Schools. Preparing future architects, designers, and change agents. So here it is, right? And I, the question is black and brown educators, faculty members, which Camille is a faculty member. Is that, is there a group? Is there a club similar to NOMA? Is there a black and brown faculty? Association, I, I I don't know how else do you frame it. Is is there one? And she said, no, not not that I know of. And I was like, let's create a conference specifically for them. Why would you create a conference specifically for them? Well, I mean, they're they're interesting topics, right? And Barbara Laurie was on her way of applying for tenure before she passed away, and there's there's just not enough of full time faculty members who are black and brown. I know, besides Camille, it's probably a handful that I know personally. Not the infamous ones that we all know, but that I know, that that I have their number and I could text them and all that good, the good stuff. So yeah, we, we talked a little bit about that. One correction, though, that I would like to make. Camille mentioned that there's a list of black and brown facility faculty members on the African-American Architectural Directory 
which is housed under the Noma website. Yeah, I know that that doesn't exist yet. Yet. And again, I'm talking presently, it's May 2023. So if you go on the website, and I, I linked the actual website in the show notes, but there isn't one. Even in looking at when you fill out the application to add your name once you are licensed, yeah, there's no checkbox unless you put your position, your job title, I guess. I guess that would be the way to, to filter stuff out. But that's current. It's not past. So if you were a faculty member, but then you, you left the school or something and decided to go back to practice. I don't know. Or you're doing it simultaneously and you put your practice in lieu of your faculty position. So I just want to correct that. So I don't want you like, where is it? What are you talking about? And no, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. So yeah, I hope you enjoy this episode and here, here you go. Camille? Yes. How are you? I'm good. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. You are a whole contact. This is a getting to know Camille. I love it. Do you love cold calls? I kind of like cold calls. It's a journey for both the listener and I. Fun fact, I got my current job through a cold call. Oh. Yeah. So I'm a faculty member at the School of Public Architecture at Kane University. And it was actually a friend of mine who had sent me an article, you know, some years ago, it was maybe 10 years ago, that they were starting a new school of architecture. And she said, hey, have you heard about this? And I was like, no, but I'm going to teach there. And I just sent a a blind email. I was like, you know, you don't know me, but my name's Camille and I'm interested in, in being a part of this. After that email, then what happened? Maybe a couple of months before I heard back, I believe. And then it started sort of formal process or a semi-formal process where I was invited to a series of interviews and, you know, I did a couple of teaching demonstrations and, you know, I met with all of the faculty and and all of the students, but, you know, I came in and, and didn't have any previous connections because I didn't go to school in the New York area. I was really kind of starting, starting from scratch. Were you already in New York or? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I was in New York since about 2013, I graduated from the Architectural Association in London. And I came here probably like the month that I graduated. I didn't even stick around for graduation. It was like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to New York. Goodbye. So yeah, I was already here working full time in the city. And then I had heard about them starting a a new school of architecture. And, you know, that was something that I, I jumped onto while I was still working full time. So let's go back. I think that's interesting. How did you get to the AA? Are you from the UK? I was born in the US. I'm American. Mm -hmm. Part of it was when I was an undergraduate architecture student that I sort of found myself at and I, I didn't necessarily want to be there or maybe a better way to say that would be that I don't think it was the best fit for me. Mm-hmm. And so I always felt like there was a better place for me. And I was hearing about what they were doing at the AA. And I just thought, that's my place. These are my people. And so, you know, that was sort of my dream school. I decided that that was where I needed to be. I'm American. And I sort of picked up and moved to the UK. That's crazy. I would think of McGill, right? Like I can go mm-hmm. to Canada, but have you visited the school before? Or it was just a... No, it was really just based on the school, the the work that they were doing, the faculty, the reputation. And I'd heard about 
Ali Rahim and, and Saha Adid and everything that they were doing. And it was just like, you know, this is where I need to be. Like, this is really speaking to me. So, you know, I had never visited, hadn't been there, but I knew like the AA was where I wanted to be. How different was it? Was it a culture shock for you? Especially think, being American, right? Yeah, but it, it's sort of delayed response, I would say, where it takes maybe like a year or two for things to really settle in. And I think part of it is when you go someplace where they speak the same language and a lot of things are quite familiar, it feels the same. And it's not until a certain period of time where you start to really see the differences. And so I think initially it wasn't so much a culture shock, even though there were, you know, some things that happened quite early on where it was like, hmm, I never, I never really thought about that. And so, for example, I remember day one and I had just gotten off the train and I was sort of in the heart of the city and I was asking for directions and there was a, a cop and, and I stopped him and asked like, hey, you know, how do I get to such and such an address? And then he told me he was really nice. And I think in the end I said, awesome. And he was like, oh my gosh, you're so American. Like Americans really say awesome. And it just dawned on me like, okay, I didn't know that that was a weird American <laughs> thing that we did, but it was constantly being reminded in, in subtle ways that you weren't English, that you were different. But I think it wasn't a huge culture shock. I, I think, again, it's something that emerges like little by little over time where it starts to compile. Their education is different from our education in terms of the architecture education. So they, in order for them to get licensed, there's part one, part two. Is there part three, right? Yes. So yeah, the part yeah. three would be the actual license. Right. Did you complete your part one or the, just familiarize the audience as to how that works? Yeah. So I, I completed through my part two. And so I, I didn't complete the licensure part. And so the license part is sort of a an additional credential. So you would have to go back to university and study and, and take the exam. So I didn't complete the part three portion, but I went through part two. So there there are work requirements, which I think is the biggest distinction between the system that we have here in the U.S., where it's sort of on the individual to figure all that out. It's it's on the individual to get jobs. And, you know, if you do it, if you don't, there's not necessarily anyone sort of tracking that. It's not embedded as a part of the educational system, I think, as it is, it is over there. So here you complete five or six years or like four plus two, which is undergrad and then two years of graduate or three years of graduate, depending on whether you actually went to architecture school or not. But over there, how many years do you need to complete part one and part two? Yeah, I think the biggest difference is, and the school that I teach at is exactly as you're describing, it's a four plus two. So students are in school for a minimum of six years. I think the biggest difference is there's a lot of students who are graduating from here who don't have any work experience. And over there, because it's baked into the system that you would do these years out, that I think students are somewhat at an advantage. And so I, I think I see a lot of students here at my school who they have a master's degree, but they've never necessarily been in an architectural office. They've never had an internship. And so I think for me, that puts specifically a lot of you know, minority students, a lot of women, I, I think that puts them at a huge disadvantage because they're really starting out you know, with a master's degree and they're kind of starting from scratch. 
I spoke to a couple of graduate students who went there. University of Bath is an example. Some were international students, and I believe some were from besides like the nomenclature of being an American, speaking American, quote unquote, words. Your colleagues, did they talk about their experience or witness any any experiences that was kind of different? Or, And I think one of perhaps the unique things about the AA and, and one of the best things is that it's really a international institution because it's a private school. And so you really don't get very many UK students who go there. And mm. so you're getting students from all over the world. And so when I was there, there were a lot of students who were from Greece and there were a lot of Chinese students. There were a lot of Indian students. And so it really is an international university. And then you're getting all of that richness and, and all of that diversity. And so I would say in my year, maybe there was one British student mm-hmm. who was there. And I think one American student, one student from Curacao, but it was really an, an international student body. Okay. Here, for example, a lot of schools, they'll like go to Rome or they'll go to Germany or something. What was the international trip (laughs) at school? There were so many of them. (laughs) And I think maybe that was one thing that stood out, that travel was so normalized. It Mm. was a very normal thing to just hop on a plane and, and go somewhere where I feel like in the U.S. it's sort of a unique thing that even becomes quite often competitive that everyone doesn't have an opportunity to participate in. And so for me, you know, we, we took studio trips to Austria. We went to Austria. One time we went to Switzerland, but there were also a lot of studio trips that went to California, that went to Egypt, that, you know, they were traveling all over the world. But I think what really stood out was that travel was really embedded as a core element of the architectural education, where I think here, it again, it becomes maybe like a once in a, in a program opportunity where maybe students have one option throughout, you know, their undergraduate or master's experience where, you know, we had a lot of opportunities to travel and, and go different places. How would you compare your teaching style? Do you incorporate some of the things that you experienced as a student over at the AA now that you're incorporating? Absolutely. And so I think even for one travel for me is super important. I think experiential learning, getting students out of their sort of day-to-day lives is, is really important. And I remember having so many of those moments for me where you go somewhere and it's just so fundamentally different from your everyday reality that something about that contrast really changes you. And so for me, I think study abroad is really important. I, I think travel learns are really important. That's something that I've participated in here at Kane University. You know, I went with the students for a semester to Italy. You know, we were supposed to travel before everything shut down in 2020 to China. And so we we're going to take a, a group of students out there. We also do a lot of local travel learns and national travel learns. And so I think travel as a part of the education is something that I I definitely bring from the AA. But I think also, you know, the AA is such a unique experience. I think one of the biggest takeaways that I had was just really focus on what it was that you were trying to do. And I, I think it was such an inclusive environment because it really was 
welcoming for so many different, you know, sort of schools of thought. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I try to do now, which I feel like was really a sort of takeaway from my experience was we had so many juries where, you know, a faculty member or an invited guest would come in and they would start the conversation, assuming that what you did was actually worth doing. And I feel like that's something that I try to do with my students where, you know, I try not to get into conversations where I'm telling them what to do. I'm telling Mm -hmm. them what path to go down. It's sort of like, let's assume that what you're doing, what you're choosing to invest so much of your time and energy in was worth doing. And let's pick up the conversation from there so that we can have a conversation about how you can do what you are trying to do better. And I feel like that was really at the core of, of being at the AA. What courses are you teaching? So I would say I always teach design studio every semester. So that's one of my core classes. I've taught undergraduate and graduate, but I have a lot more fun teaching at the undergraduate level. And so I typically try to stick to third year undergraduate because I feel like that's a a really pivotal year where in our curriculum, number one, they're being introduced to a lot of the technical aspects of architectural design. But then also, number two, that's really where our study abroad and and travel learn start to kick in. And so most students start to travel in the third year. And so in the spring semester, I actually do a studio that's called Travel, and we take an opportunity to go abroad. And so I would say my, my bread and butter, my core class is really the undergraduate third year studio. So we want to get into why architecture. Mm-hmm. Why did you pick architecture? Was it something that growing up you were like, I love the built environment. I want to design it someday. You played with Legos. Like what? what's your story? Yeah, I think I did a little bit of that. And so I think going back, I can certainly pull photographs of myself, you know, making dollhouses out of construction paper and cereal boxes. And so I have some photos of that, you know, definitely playing around with Legos and connects. I don't remember if you remember those toys. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I, I definitely have some of those photographs so I could pull in that narrative and that story. But I think really, why did I get into architecture? I think it was a little bit of naivete. <laughs> I had never met an architect before I decided that this is what I wanted to do. But I remember I was actually in high school and I was I think 15 or 16 years years old. And there was a friend of mine whose boyfriend was in a class of mine, which was not architecture related. It was another elective course. And he was taking this drafting class. And I remember one day it was at the end of the school year, he sort of came in and he had all of these drawings and you know, he was going to throw them away because it was at the end of the semester and it was sort of like, take it or you know, we're going to toss it all. And so he had all of these drawings that he had drafted up and he said, you know, hey, do you want any of these? I'm, I'm just going to throw them away. And so I was like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll take some of these. And so that was really the first time that I saw like a proper architectural drawing. And for me, I just thought it was magic. And that was it for me. I thought the ability to just have an idea in your mind that you could draw so that someone else could see it too. And then, you know, potentially you could build it and you could make it real. To me, that was magic. And I mm-hmm. thought, you know, what could be better than that? I, I want to do that. You know, the fact that you can have an idea and you can make it real. I thought that, that sounds amazing. That's what I wanted to do. And so I knew I wanted to be an architect from the time I was, you know, probably 16 years old. And it was like, this is it for me. 
I've never met an architect, you know, I, I've probably no idea what I'm getting into, but it was, you know, that idea, that vision that, that really, really drove me. Do you think it's still magic? I think it can be. <laughs> I think it's definitely a little bit of a mature <laughs> sort of depiction that I have in my mind where it's not as fantastic, but I think the, the essence of that is still there. I think we do still get to have ideas about the way that we think people should relate to one another, about the way that we feel we should live or the way that we we envision the both environment and we have the ability to translate that and communicate that to others and, and to make it real. So I do think that that's still at the heart of it. Absolutely. How was your first internship? My first, first internship? I believe I was an undergraduate student and I think it was through a friend of mine where he was interning with a sole practitioner and they needed additional help. And so he sort of, you know, pulled me into into that job. And so I think that's really how it came about. But I think a little bit more broadly, I think what was really significant, which I really wonder about this sometimes because I don't think students today are necessarily in the same position is that when I started that internship, you know, I was working in retail and this was probably about 2003, 2004. And so I was making 535 an hour. And so, you know, when my friend approached me about having this architectural internship, it was, you know, you can make $12 an hour. And it was like, that was fantastic. And mm -hmm. so you had the ability to increase your your income from 535 to 12. And so there was a huge incentive for me to to start working and, and take that internship. And so I think for me, that was a huge motivation where now, you know, I talk to a lot of students and, you know, I, I'm not sure that the same level of motivation exists because, you know, you're not talking about, you know, doubling or tripling your salary. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think it was you know, an opportunity that came through a friend who was working, who was a little bit older than me. But I think what really was the catalyst was, you know, I had the ability to increase my salary two and a half times. And so it was like, count me in. So at the internship, what was the huge learning curve that you had to grasp at the internship? The big element for me was probably collaboration and, and working with others. Mm -hmm. And I think along with that, probably speaking up for yourself. Mm. And so I remember there was a specific situation where, you know, we were working on a project where, you know, I had to do one portion of it and someone else had to do another portion of it. And I was sort of pointing out that there was something that was incorrect that someone else was doing that was not aligning with what I was doing and they just weren't listening to me. And so being in that situation where it was like, listen, I, I might be a young black girl, but I know what I'm talking about. And if you actually stop to listen for a second, you would realize that what I'm saying is actually correct. And so I think that was maybe a big learning curve of, you know, when you're in a situation and you really have something to say that needs to be said, that you really need to, to say it. How about your last job prior to you going to teaching full time? Mm -hmm. What are some of the projects that you worked on? I worked on a lot of affordable and supportive housing projects throughout New York City. And so a lot of projects in the Bronx and, and in Brooklyn. And so that was really my bread and butter. And 
again, mostly affordable, supportive housing, one or two market rate housing, but but mostly that. Are you from New York? Yeah, well, I'm originally I was born in Jersey, so I'm, okay. I'm from Newark, okay. Newark, New Jersey. What are some of your jobs, again, prior to your teaching position? Were they all centered in the tri-state area or? For the most part, yes. I worked in Atlanta. Also, when I was in the UK, I worked for a firm out there. But the majority of my time has definitely been in in New York City and Manhattan. I feel like in New York, it's like a different animal there. Like, I feel like the hustle and bustle. And if you if you don't know, then they'll just crush you. This is the environment is fast paced and all that good stuff in the affordable housing or just housing arena in general, working with the community. How has that been for you? And how do you carry that with your students who are also, well, may or may not be, is the majority, and I'm asking like two questions in, at once. The, your, the majority of your students are from the area, correct? Yes. Yeah. So how do you prepare them or do they have like questions as to like, like how do you handle the community or? One, I really loved working on the projects that I was working on because I, I think it was the first time that I sort of saw myself from the outside looking in. And so, you know, I would do a lot of CA. And so I was going out to construction sites and, and project meetings you know, probably once or twice a week. And I remember at least one time, you know, I'd be on a train and, you know, I'd have my drawings, I'd have my hard hat and, you know, someone would, would say like, what do you do? Like, why do you, why do you have a hard hat? Like, what do you, do you work construction? What do you do? And, and so I would say, oh, I'm an architect. And it'd be like, okay. And, and it would just open the floodgates to some really interesting conversations. And I think that was really the first time that I, I got to really see it from the outside in that, you know, most people, they've never met. An architect before and then they've never met a female architect before and then they've never met a black architect before and you know even just going out to construction meetings and going out to the site you know i'd have all of these really rich conversations with everyday people that i would meet on the train where you know it'd be like i wanted to be an architect or you know i have an, an idea or i can draw or you know you just get into all of these you know really interesting conversations and i really felt like you know people see themselves in you and and everyone's really rooting for you and so i think that was really impactful for me. At the same time, I think what you're saying about the sort of culture in New York, I, I think that was really profound. And I, I think a big part of that was the reason why I sort of left the profession altogether and decided that, you know, it wasn't the best fit for me. And I remember, you know, years ago, I heard actually there was this interview with Damon Dash. And he was kind of talking about his life and the person interviewing him had asked him the question, you know, something along the lines of, you know, what happened to you? JC, he has a billion dollars. Where's your billion dollars? Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's married to Beyonce and where's your Beyonce? And, you know, what do you say, you know, to people who say that, you know, you're a loser, you you fell off and and what happened? And, you know, he gave an answer that you know, really stuck with me. And, and I think even to this day, I, I still think about it where he said, if you feel like you're losing, you're losing. And it doesn't matter what anybody has to say. And if you feel like you're winning, you're winning. And I think at that time, I felt like I was losing. But on the surface of things, like everything looks great. 
I work for a great firm and, you know, I have my own place in Manhattan on the Upper East Side and I have a great life, but I feel like I'm losing. And I think that really forced me to take a step back and really think about what does being an architect look like for me and what does winning look like for me? And I think, you know, I had to make a radical change. And so I think that's something that, you know, I try to have those conversations with students because quite often, you know, we have this idea that, you know, we're working towards something for so long that, you know, I'm trying to get this degree, I'm trying to get this job that, you know, perhaps we're not always taking a second to really think about, like, what does it look like for you? Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, when I first, I say quit my job, (laughs) because I kind of don't think about now what I'm doing in terms of, you know, having my own small practice and and teaching, I I don't really feel like that's like a job job. But when I first left, you know, professional practice as an employee, I really felt like, you know what, I'm, I'm winning. Like I have the life that I really want. And there's something to this. I didn't want my life to be sort of measured by how productive I could be, or how much money I could generate. I really wanted to value myself on a different metric. And I think so often being in New York, it really does feel like that rat race where it's all about how many credentials you have. It's all about how much money you make. And it's like my life radically changed after I left. And it was about how many books did I read this week? And how much did I draw this week? How many podcasts did I listen to? How many lectures did I go to? And I think that really started to formulate a sort of vision for myself of the kind of architect and more generally the kind of person that I wanted to be. And so, you know, I really hope that, you know, students can, you know, really start to think about that kind of stuff. And again, you know, when you're working for so long towards a single goal of getting a degree or or getting a specific job, you know, I hope that we can also just take a step back and really ask, like, what does this look like for me specifically? Going back to that feeling that you mentioned, did the teaching opportunity present itself to you? And then you're like, this is my out? Or was it, it's been lingering for a long time, you were either ignoring it, or sometimes you have this feeling, you feel trapped, you know, you have no other option, this is your life, this is it. Like, what was the catalyst that that really a, recognized that's something that you just wasn't feeling right? Like, was there an incident? And then which came first, right? Like, I need to, I need to change. I need to find a change. Or did the change happen to you? Yeah, so the teaching came first. So I was already teaching part-time okay. while I was working full-time. I've always been that person who's thinking ahead of, you mm-hmm. know, thinking about the next thing. And so maybe it's because I'm more of a, I don't know, an extroverted person. I, I have a little bit of like shiny object syndrome. I don't know. Like if something <laughs> comes up, it's like, oh, that sounds great. I want to do that. And, right, right. And so I've always been that kind of person. And so I was teaching part-time while I was still working full-time. I think there definitely was a catalyst where there came a moment where I was sort of given an ultimatum where it was like, well, we need you here in the office full-time on a traditional schedule. And this was pre-pandemic. And so there wasn't necessarily the accommodation for having flexible hours or 
taking on something like teaching part-time. And so for me, I think being given that ultimatum, you know, really forced me to make a decision. And I think part of it was just thinking long-term about what my life would look like. And again, what I felt like I was really being asked. And so, you know, I started thinking about, you know, if I have a kid, for example, I don't want to be in a position where I feel like I have to ask someone if I can leave early to go pick up my kid or I didn't see myself in that sort of way. And so I felt like it was a specific ultimatum of you have to choose between sort of being on a traditional schedule of working in an office or do you want to teach and have this, you know, somewhat alternative architectural lifestyle? And so I think there was definitely a moment where like I had to choose. And so it was like, well, I, I kind of choose this. And so that definitely pushed me into making that decision where I do think I probably wouldn't have made it otherwise, or at the very least, it, it wouldn't have come, you know, so quickly. What's next for you? Interesting. I think definitely the teaching aspect is something that I'm really passionate about. And so that's something that I see long-term as part of my architectural journey. I think as a part of that, trying to create opportunities and participate in opportunities where you know, we can start to create opportunities for students, but also envision a profession that was slightly different than the way that it was for us. And so I'm really interested in getting students jobs and really interested in participating in initiatives from NOMA or the ACSA or all of the great work that DMU is doing. And so I think that's a, a really big next step for me to continue a lot of that work. And then on a sort of individual level, I, I think continuing to sort of figure out the balance between practicing architecture and teaching architecture and sort of having your your head in a couple of different buckets. And so I think that's something that I want to continue to do to build in a maybe non-traditional manner, but also to to teach architecture. And so I hope that the future is is robust and, and includes a little bit of everything. Is there a specific thing you want to focus on? Like we talked about earlier about affordable housing in terms of practicing or even like extracurriculars, like you mentioned NOMA, do you want to be president of NOMA someday? Like what specifics that you may be interested in focusing on? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of them. From the academic side, I think creating more opportunities for students to travel and to participate in study abroad programs and, and travel learn programs. And so hopefully I'll get to take another group of students to Italy next year. I started a conversation probably about a, about a week ago about starting a short-term travel learn to China. And so I'm hoping that in the next year we can get that going and, and bring some architecture students over to China. There's some other areas around the globe that I'd like to explore. And so I think Travel Learn is going to be a big initiative for me. In terms of NOMA, you know, I'm a proud member of NOMA New Jersey. I was on the executive board of NICOBA NOMA and, and a member of them for, for quite some time. But I, I think you know, in the past couple of years, I've transitioned to Nicoba, New Jersey, or Noma, New Jersey. And so we're really a core group out here trying to, to do great things. And 
And so whether it's on the executive board or, you know, just as a, a supportive member, I think, you know, being consistently involved in the work of NOMA New Jersey. And then again, on the practice front, I think more collaborations is definitely something that, you know, I have on my radar. I'm working on a affordable housing competition with a friend of mine that we actually went to the AA together. And so that's a great project that we're hoping can lead to a future joint venture and, and additional projects. And so I think, you know, really excited about service, NOMA, teaching, and then also practice. Anything that I missed in this conversation that you want to talk about before you wrap up? Mm, yeah, I mean, I've heard so many of your conversations. And I think what's been interesting is they all have different perspectives and, and take on the industry. You know, I think the big thing for me that I'm probably thinking about on a regular basis is how can we sort of have conversations that aren't being had that can really impact the students and, and the emerging professionals that are coming up. And so I think even some of the points that we touch upon in terms of really thinking about what the profession and, and what being an architect means to you. Hopefully that's something that resonates with, you know, a lot of the viewers. I think we got into teaching and, and a little bit of practice. And so I think we covered a couple of really good things. One of the things that, you know, I could definitely push or, or promote if there's a, a platform here. You know, one of the things I think or hope that architects, specifically architects of color, perhaps can start to think about is getting into teaching. Hmm. And so I think that's something that is incredibly rewarding. And, you know, here at Kane University, we actually have a fellowship program. And so if there's anyone in architecture or even any of the allied design disciplines who are like, you know what, I think I might want to get into teaching. You know, I think I, I might want to dip my toes in that. They can certainly reach out to me or, you know, we can talk a little bit about that. Is there a Black organization for educators in, in this profession? Is there a group? Is there a club? Yeah, I mean, I would say that NOMA National is is really trying to put that at the, the forefront of mm -hmm. some of the initiatives and some of the work that they're trying to do. And so I know Crazy Daniels from Tuskegee is trying to get going a peer-reviewed publication. And I think that was something that he soft launched perhaps last year's NOMA conference. And so they're really trying to create a new journal or, or publication that gives a voice and an opportunity for you know, diverse faculty members to sort of publish and, and to write. And so I do think that NOMA National is kind of taking on, you know, the academic side of things, or at least starting to recognize that, you know, we've been doing a lot of fantastic work in practice, but, you know, a, a really big part of that conversation is who is teaching your kid. And right. so I, I think that has become like a, a goal or a larger priority for NOMA National. And so I know there's, there's efforts that are, are going on there. Is there a number out there to know the black and brown folks who are teaching at universities, colleges and universities in architecture? Yes. So the directory that now NOMA is in charge of, it tracks not just the number of Black architects, but there's also an option to sort of indicate if you're a Black faculty member. Mm. And so when you self-report 
your licensure status, there's also an op an option to report whether you're a, a faculty member. And so the directory should have that information in there as well. Has NAB taken any interest in that? So I know the ACSA has taken a huge interest in that, and they've done a lot of research in academia, and that's included looking at demographics in terms of the student body, but also the faculty and staff. And so I think the ACSA has definitely been doing a lot of you know, really fantastic research in the past probably five years related to schools of architecture and, and academia. And so I would say probably ACSA is, is really leading a lot of that work. In terms of NAB, I'd say maybe a little bit less so just because I, I think that's not really their avenue. I would say maybe the biggest thing that they have done is, is probably to just diversify the members that are on their visiting teams. And so I know I, for example, I just served on my first NAB accreditation visiting team. And I do feel like everyone at NAB was just really supportive about making sure that those who are evaluating our schools look like, you know, the the students who are in our schools, the faculty members who are in our schools. And so I think they're trying to do their part in terms of making sure that, you know, those groups and those teams who are evaluating schools of architecture are diverse, that there's black and brown members on those teams, there are women on those teams. And so I think they're doing their efforts in, in that part. You know, as I'm talking to you, I'm getting kind of excited. I started just thinking about having a conference specifically mm -hmm. for us, but educators particularly. Is there something that exists? Like, do you guys get together and it's like, like, is there a community? Like, other than NOMA meeting up there, is there any other community out there? Not to my knowledge. I think like you're saying, it's it's always slightly tangential where, you know, perhaps we're meeting up at AIA conferences or NOMA conferences, but I think that's a great idea. I think we just started it right now. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Let's do that. Because I, I had this idea and it didn't really fall through, but to interview, like I interviewed Hazel Edwards and I wanted to talk to Carla. I don't know if I called Dr. Carla. She's, she's at Tuskegee. Her name okay. isn't escaping me, but her. And because, you know, they're they're leading the charge at these universities and do a little series. But I didn't think about <laughs> I didn't think about faculty at all until you mentioned it. So, I mean, that would be great, right? Like to have a conference specifically for us, by us, to talk about issues and just create a community in, in that sense. Because I feel that it's always a one-off, right? And mm -hmm. especially with tenure, like it's so difficult for us to get tenured unless you go to HBCU school, which is kind of just obvious, right? I don't know how tenured work for for you. Like, is there, I mean, obviously you will want that. You, you have to publish something or something like, is that how that works? Yeah. So for tenure, there's essentially three main categories that you need to be operating in simultaneously. And so there's teaching, there's service, and there's research. And so the research component is a little bit of what you're speaking about in terms of publications. But I think for us in design and in the visual arts, that could potentially look a little bit different. And so, for example, for me, I try to sort of not just 
a focus on traditional publications and, and sort of peer-reviewed articles, but also try to self-initiate projects. As the one that I mentioned, me and a friend of mine doing a affordable housing competition. And then I think the the key piece is to have that external peer review. And so, for example, even if you were doing design work and, and self-initiated projects, you know, is that something that you could potentially submit for a design award? And so that could be, you know, part of your sort of scholarship. Mm -hmm. And so, but yeah, broadly speaking for tenure, it's sort of like this three-pronged approach where you're simultaneously focused on teaching, service, and then also research and, and scholarship. All right. So let's do this. Yeah, let's do it. And <laughs> I think exactly what you're saying. I mean, Sarah Sutton is sort of the the trailblazer, but yeah. You know, always, oh, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm really amazed by just discovering so many amazing professors. And you find out about these people that they're embedded in all of these schools across the country and across North America and the globe. And you had no idea what they were doing and all of the fantastic work. And I think quite often it happens, but it's not necessarily as public facing where mm -hmm. we have, for example, a lot of conversations, a lot of lectures, but it doesn't necessarily get out there. And so I know, for example, I think it was a year ago, two years ago, I had the amazing Dr. Craig Wilkins mm, from Michigan. Yeah. He he came and he actually spoke at at my school and it was absolutely fantastic. But you know, I think again, a lot of the times, you know, you're discovering people or, you know, there are these individual lectures that are happening. But exactly like you're saying, there there's not like a a larger national conference or, or place where we all come together to to really showcase ourselves. Mm -hmm. And how does the climate of ACSA is? I follow them on Instagram and they seem pretty solid in terms of diversifying topics. I think for me, I've been incredibly, incredibly impressed by the work of the ACSA. And I think one of the things that really dove me into it was, I think it was two years ago now, a year or two years ago now, I have no sense of time whatsoever. But I, I think it was a year or two years ago, I actually won a ACSA education award. Oh, it was good. the new faculty award. And I sort of applied for it a little bit in terms of recognition. <laughs> but I think also, as you're saying, you know, one of those tenure requirements of, you know, this is expected of me. But then when I won it, it was really an opportunity to not just go to the conference and present, but also to really learn about all of the work that's being done across the country. And so the ACSA, they have these annual education awards. And I think that's really a great opportunity to learn about the work that's being done across the country. And so for me, I think when I won the new faculty award, I really started sort of reading about all the other faculty members across the, the country and in and, and Canada who had won the award, reading about all of the distinguished faculty that were honored, all of the other categories. I mean, they have so many. They're acknowledging work that's being done in design builds across the country and housing across the country and so many different subgenres and, and so many different categories. And so I think ACSA to me is, is really doing a lot of fantastic work in recognizing, you know, all of the efforts that are happening across the country. And even in my cohort of the new faculty who won 
the year that I did, I mean, there was a, a professor who won from, I think, Hawaii, who was doing just amazing work in, in a design center and someone who won, I mean, just faculty all over the country. So I, I think ACSA is really at the forefront there. I like where this went. Yay! Well, I'm excited. I'm excited about this idea of putting something together. And yeah. I really am that person like, okay, let's do it. Let's go. I don't know how. So I would love to meet everybody in a location. So maybe a university can host us, right? Mm-hmm. That's the that's the first thing. And then the theme, right? What would the theme be? I've never attended an ACSA conference before. So do we want to mimic that? Or do we want to create something unique and different to hone in on whatever message or theme of that conference will be? Perhaps this could even be sort of like the the first call to action where, you know, maybe we we sort of co-author this and we just start to get people together and, and have the conversation. So what do we all feel collectively like this should look like or, you know, what direction does it take? And so. That's a good idea. Okay. So yeah. we could do another call yeah. and I invite some friends. And if you know anybody, we can invite some people to create a list and meet up and start coordinating this. And maybe 2024, Absolutely. we have a conference. Absolutely. I love and to I love to add things on my plate. <laughs> I know I'm, I'm that person where it's like, it doesn't matter how busy you are, how much you have going on. If, if there's an interesting idea, it's like, I'm in, I'll figure out the logistics later. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll commit myself to things that sound really interesting. And I think oftentimes I, I just make decisions based on like, I like you, let's be friends. Like, let's yeah. do something together. Yeah, you know, it's, it's just like, just that simple. Like, okay, let's do something. Let's just, let's just do this. Oh, Absolutely. I'm excited. I'm excited. And again, there's Dark Matter University, mm, which is yeah. the organization that I'm a part of. I mean, there's so many of us embedded across the country. And so I'm sure that could be a good avenue to reach out to. Because again, that's a collective of black and brown folks in academia who are spread across the country. And so we can certainly invite some of them to this conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think the core, the coreness of this, right? is to affect change. I don't want to say change, but, but to... I, I think something even really important that you said that it's really difficult to get tenure. Yeah. And there's not a lot of diverse tenured faculty in this country. And I think part of what it's going to take is for us to sort of help each other. You know, mm-hmm. it's sort of like a each one, teach one, you know, the next one sort of mentality. And so one of the things that I've been sort of thinking about and mentioning to people here and there over the, the past year, like year and a half, is that if we do have senior faculty members out there across the country who have tenure, that they could be brought into the fold to not only help mentor the next generation, but then also part of tenure is that you need to have referees, you need to have people who are writing letters on your behalf. And so if we could start to pair those who are at different stages of academia together, that that could collectively help all of us. Yes, exactly. Or even just getting hired, right? Like you have a lot of, we are a lot, we are the majority of adjuncts, right? Like if you ever see black and brown people in education, it's because we're adjuncts. We have one or two classes here and there, 
or working full-time. There may be an interest of being a full-time faculty member. How do you do that? How do you navigate through that? Yeah, so I think it's a couple different things. I think number one, as you're saying, like, how do you navigate and how do you get there? But I, I think also it's just, who do you know? So I think a lot of the times it's the easiest way to get in, you know, whether it's academia or even professional practice is to know someone. And so I think if we could start to make those connections, I think we could create a pipeline for those who want to get into academia. And quite often it can really start with coming to juries and being on design reviews or being invited into a university to sit in with some students. And so I think that really could be where it starts. But I, again, I, I think a large part of that is connections and, and who you know and building up a network. And as far as Kane University, I, I think I have a reputation of bringing people in. So I'm that person where it's like, hey, you know, feel free to contact me at any time. And, you know, I think well, I've recommended many people who have been hired. So I think if anyone's in the tri-state area, if they're in New Jersey, if you want to have a conversation about King University, or even if you're interested in sort of participating in a design jury, and, and maybe that's your gateway, absolutely. You know, I, I'd love to get different voices in the conversation. And, you know, again, I think a large part of that is, who do you know? Like, how do you get your foot in the door? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'll add your contact info in the show notes so people could just hit you up with that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Melissa. I know it's, again, I, I said it earlier, it's it's like raining, it's dark, it's cloudy. <laughs> it, it, this was, I feel like, cozy conversation. Uh, yes. I'm getting cozy fall vibes in the middle <laughs> of April. I don't know. <laughs> I know. So thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. And thank you for all of the work you do. And I, I see this as being a form of education. And so, you know, all of the work that you're doing with your podcast, like truly, truly, keep going and now i'm looking forward to the the conversation continuing about this conference we need to yes. do it yeah thanks for tuning in to architecture's political podcast i hope you enjoyed this episode and found it informative or at least entertaining if you like what you heard please share with others you can also connect with Arcus poly on social media currently on instagram as well as facebook and twitter if for more information, visit us on our website. It's arcispoly.online, A-R-C-H-I-P-O-L-L-Y.online. I also want to thank our loyal supporters who have been with this podcast for at least three years. It means the world to me, and I'm totally grateful to have you part of this community. I will try to bring you the best content as possible, and I can't wait to share more amazing episodes with you. If this is your first time listening or just like a particular episode or all of them, you can support this podcast by going on glow.fm slash arcuspoly. Again, thank you for your support. It means the world to me. And thank you so much for listening.